We'll hear argument first this morning in case 07411, Plains Commerce Bank versus Long Family Land and Cattle Company. Mr. Banker. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Tribes lack inherent sovereign power over non-members. This Court in the Montana decision recognized two narrow exceptions based on the underlying principles of protecting tribal self-government and controlling internal relations. Neither of those exceptions applies here. The question today is whether the Tribal Court possessed adjudicatory jurisdiction to hear the Long's discrimination claim against the non-member bank. It did not. There was no qualifying consensual relationship here of the qualifying kind. There was adjudication is not another means of regulating non-member defendant conduct. We've we've said that regulation does include uh, regulation by adjudication for purposes of uh, of federal preemption uh, laws. Why would it why would it be different for uh, for Indian law? Well, I think that the reason that it would be different for Indian law is the way that it bears on the non-member defendant's rights. The, if you look at what Montana was based on in the underlying principles, I think it is important to recognize that non-member defendants in tribal court uh, finding themselves there to adjudicate you know, that is something that I think was contemplated by the second exception, but not the first exception. The reason that I think that is that in carving out two exceptions. I understand, but I'm, I'm just talking about the first one now. You say it is not, it is not regulation, right, under the first. And that's, on, that's the only point I'm addressing. Uh, why, why should regulation through a process of adjudication not be considered regulation for purposes of our Indian law, where, whereas we have made clear in several cases that it does constitute regulation for purposes of uh, federal preemption under statutes that preempt state regulation. I think that it is different in the tribal law context because in Articulating the, the the first exception, when the court said you know, regulate uh, non-member conduct through other means, you know, if the court had meant to say adjudication, I think the court could have articulated that there. And I think it's we could have said the same thing about the Congress. Congress just said just said regulation, and we interpreted that term to include common law adjudication. When I look at the, you know, at the, and compare the language in the first Montana exception of regulation to the language in the Constitution under the Indian Commerce Clause, I see a parallel there between saying that, you know, there are certain types of legislative authority that tribes may exercise over non-members versus exercising the power of the courts. Well, are you saying that the, that the regulatory authority could be broader than the adjudicatory authority? I think that has been well established, that the regulatory — Can you give any example of that? I mean, I found that uh, rather surprising in your brief. I mean, Montana — a clear case that Montana talks about is tax, the imposition of a tax. Well, if 
a jurisdiction has authority to tax, then surely it has authority to sue to collect that tax. So I am not aware of a case where a state, a tribe, a nation has authority to regulate, to legislate, but lacks authority to enforce that regulation. And if you have an example of that, I, I would appreciate being enlightened. Well, I think that there's a tension between what the Court said in the Strait case, where it said presumptively if there's the power to regulate, then there's presumptively the power to adjudicate. That, I believe, was called into question by the second footnote in the Nevada versus Hicks decision, which questioned, in my mind, whether or not uh, there was any adjudicatory power at all. And I think that is the question that the Court has to determine, is whether — What was the regulation that was authorized but unenforceable in the courts? I don't, I don't recall um, Montana, uh, I mean, Hicks having said anything on that subject. Well, the, there was a, the footnote number two in Hicks at least called into question about whether or not, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's been made clear by the Court's opinions that regulate, that adjudicatory authority is certainly no broader than legislative authority. The question raised by the second footnote in the Hicks opinion, in my mind, is whether or not adjudicatory authority exists at all under the first exception. Well, what is a tribe uh, supposed to do? You know, let's say there's a gas station on the reservation. The tribe has a tax for anybody doing business. It's, you know, 1 percent of gross proceeds. And at the end of the year, the gas station owner just says, well, I'm just not going to pay it. What do they do then? Well, I think that there's a difference between situations where there is a clear ability to regulate and where you would move to enforce that regulation and a situation where you are adjudicating, uh, you know, separate claims under the common law of the tribe. So you think there would be, there would be tribal court jurisdiction in the case I hypothesized? I don't think so. I, you know, I think the, the nature of the first exception is a consensual relationship. And I think if there's going to be an ability to, to regulate in the first instance, then the regulation needs to be clearly consented to. So, so if, your case, your, your entire case is based on whether or not there's consent to dealing with the tribe by the non-member? Well, I think it goes it's further than that, if I could. You know, in your example of the taxation, if there was clear consent to be taxed. Mm. Who would consent to be taxed? I mean, the taxes that <laughs> Indians impose, but say for gas at the gas station, they don't ask you when you drive up, now do you consent to the tax? Well, but by engaging in commerce on the reservation, in by, you know, and this court has addressed it in a number of taxation decisions regarding Indian law, the you know, there is a quid pro quo for... But that's different from consent. You can say, I don't consent as loudly as you like and as often as you like, and you still have to pay the tax. But that, you know, in the, in the taxation context, I think that is the price of doing business. No, but if, if that kind of implicit consent uh, applies in the tax context, I don't see why, in theory, it doesn't apply in, in the uh, 
situation we've got here. Well, uh, if, if somebody is going to do business with the tribe, with tribal members in a way that affects the tribe on the reservation, uh, it makes just as much sense to say, well, they implicitly consent not to discriminate against tribal members because of, of, of their Indian status. I think it is, you know, that consent under the first Montana exception can't be implicit. I think it needs to be explicit. Well, I thought it was implicit in the, in the tax situation as you responded to Justice Ginsburg's question. Well, I think we need to be, be specific about the taxation context. You know, I don't think that any taxation context would carry with it implicit consent. All right. Let me, let me take another example, the, the other explicit example from Montana, which, which mentioned uh, the taxing and licensing. Uh, are you saying that if uh, a, in any particular activity, say running a, a, a filling station or, or advertising oneself as a certified mechanic in, in the, at, the, at the filling station on the reservation, uh, and the tribe says, well, we're going to license mechanics to make sure they're competent, are you saying that there has got to be an explicit agreement to the licensing uh, in order for the tribe to enforce its licensing restriction against somebody who goes to work for that gas station? I mean, in that situation, if the tribe said, here is the licensing that we're going to impose on you for being a mechanic, and a mechanic then went to work at that gas station, knowing about that licensing requirement, I mean, that is, that is the sort of Okay, then that's, that's, that's implicit consent then, isn't it? I think it he, comes he doesn't close. sign a document saying, I consent. He just goes to work. Uh, and, and your answer says, okay, that's enough to catch him on licensing. In Justice Ginsburg's example, uh, if they start doing business, that's enough to catch him on taxation. Uh, and if that is so, uh, why isn't tribal dealing uh, sufficient uh, in effect uh, to supply an implicit consent not to discriminate? Well, I don't know that I would, I would disagree that I would say that those examples of consent, of the licensing and of the taxation, are much closer to being actual consent. I'm not saying by actual consent that there needs to be a written document that, you know, says... You don't really mean actual consent by actual consent, right? Well, yes. I mean, you should use a different term, like implicit consent, maybe. The... I think that there has to be a line drawn. All right. Why draw the line where you want to draw it? Uh, we've got a line in which the uh, uh, the I'll, I'll put a blank. The X consent, whatever we want, whatever adjective we want, suffices for taxation and it suffices for licensing. Why doesn't it suffice for non-discrimination? Why do we draw the line where you want it drawn? The reason where we would draw the line where I want to draw it is that. You know, the discrimination claim that was made here ultimately turned out to be based on tribal common law. It arose out of this, the dealing, the contractual dealings between the bank and a non-member corporation. It is important for a non-member to know where tribal jurisdiction attaches or doesn't attach. And it is not possible to predict when a common law, tribal common, for an outsider to determine when a tribal common law discrimination claim is going to attach as a form of regulation. Uh, so uh, you, uh, one of your answers to an earlier question uh, suggests the same point that you now seem to be making, although I don't, I don't recall it from your brief. 
Apparently, you think that it would be different if this anti-discrimination law of the tribe had been set forth in a tribal ordinance. Is that right? Would, would, would you say your client could have been held to it if it had been written, rather than simply a, um, uh, a portion of tribal common law? If it had been a tribal anti-discrimination statute, there would have at least been the possibility of notice and the possibility of — That's not what I asked. That's not what I asked. I asked whether you would acknowledge that uh, your client could be bound if it had been written. I think that what is required to bind a non-member to tribal law is clear consent. And merely knowing about the uh, tribal anti-discrimination Well, that doesn't make any difference. We shouldn't uh, place any weight on the fact that this was a, a common law regulation rather than regulation by a statute or ordinance. Now, you can't have it both ways. It either makes a difference or it doesn't make a difference. I, I think that it does make a difference. Uh, but you just told me it didn't. I think you, that you just told me that even if it were written down, you would still need what, what, you, what you think is express consent. I think that that provides the clearest guidance for when tribal jurisdiction attaches or doesn't. Do you recognize that the, the bank was on notice, at least that it was a federal requirement, that when you deal with uh, individual Indians or what this long company was, it was an organization of Indians, that's what the federal law calls it, uh, there is a duty of fair dealing. The federal law requires that, isn't it so? That is so. But, you know, we're not here to, you know, the federal courts don't provide a substantive review on the merits. I mean, there is certainly a, another side to the story about the merits of the discrimination. But it's not, it's not uncommon that a state would adopt a federal standard and it's as its own on a question of civil rights. A state might say, well, we choose to uh, construe our human rights law in accord with the federal federal law? No, that's, that's not uncommon. But I think it's important to focus on you know, the background about, of, out of which this discrimination claim arose. And, you know, it began in the first instance with the bank, a non-member, entering into a contract with a South Dakota corporation. And the South Dakota Corporation, the Long Family Land and Cattle Company, is not a tribal member. Cannot but it be. is an organization of Indians. It is closely held by tribal members, and it is organized for the purpose of facilitating Bureau of Indian Affairs loan guarantee. Does and the state distinguish when it grants a corporation status between non-Indian and Indian corporations? I don't believe so. Can you incorporate under tribal law? You cannot un incorporate under tribal law. Uh, wasn't part of the transaction uh, the obtaining of, uh, of uh, backup liability on the part of the uh, individual Indians who, uh, who owned the corporation? Didn't they guarantee the loan? You have to be specific about the, the loan guarantees and the contracts that we're talking about. Before 1996, before the loan contracts that are at issue here, there were lending relationships and loan guarantees that were made. And after 1996, 
when additional loans were made, there were personal guarantees that were made. There was no attempt ever to enforce those personal guarantees, but they were part of the record. Well, but it does give the, it does give the whole thing a, a, a decided flavor of, of dealing with, with, with Indians on the reservation. You're dealing with a corporation that, uh, that's uh, majority-owned or, or entirely owned. Is it majority or entirely? I believe it is, is certainly 51 percent, yeah. and there's a question okay. about whether it's more. And, and, uh, and, and then you get guarantees from uh, on-reservation Indians? I, it smells like uh, dealing with uh, Indians on the reservation to me. And, of, of course, the certainty that you're, that you're asking your client could have obtained that, that certainty by uh, inserting a, a, a choice of law provision, providing uh, uh, that uh, any disputes would be resolved somewhere else, couldn't it? There's no question that this whole question would have been avoided had there been a choice of forum selection that placed the dispute resolution squarely in South Dakota courts. In the absence of that, in the silence of that. Yeah, in the absence of that, why, why should we bend over backwards to, uh, uh, to give something that has the smell of dealing with the, with the Indians uh, uh, any other name? Uh, your, your clients can fully protect themselves by a, by a choice of form provision. I think that in the, in the face of silence in the contract, the general rule controls rather than its exception. Well, your clients, could they fully protect themselves? What if the tribe sought to enforce tribal law against them. Can they bring that claim in state court? If the, if the tribe or if the tribal members sought to enforce that? Right. Well, just like this. And there was a choice of forum provision says, well, you've got to bring this in state court. I thought there were restrictions on whether tribal law can be enforced in state courts. Well, I think it's a question on who the, who the plaintiff is. If the Long Family Land and Cattle Company, the South Dakota Corporation, had had a contract with the bank that said your forum for dispute resolution is South Dakota courts and the Long Family Land and Cattle Company had commenced an action in South Dakota court, I think the dispute could have been resolved there. I, Even if it — well, that's if it's a contract claim. What if it's a uh, discrimination or Indian common law claim arising out of the uh, contractual relationship? That's a more difficult question. Uh, you know, there was — it isn't part of the — question presented, but there was a dispute in the underlying tribal court about the nature of the discrimination claim and whether it arose under federal law or, or, you know, what was its underlying basis. That was resolved in favor of it being a tribal law claim. Um, as I understand the Tribal Court of Appeals' explanation of that in the underlying basis, that there's little difference between the tribal law claim and the, you know, the underlying federal discrimination law. Is it a contract claim? Is it, a, is it a contract claim? Was, what, was the claim a claim for discrimination in contracting so that uh, it was part of the contract claim? No, I believe that the discrimination — It's a freestanding tort action. Is that what it, it was? It is a freestanding tort action. Would the, would the jurisdictional issue be any different if it were a contract claim? Supposing your, your client — uh, they had brought suit against your client claiming a breach of contract. Would there have been tribal court jurisdiction? Well, 
we have to look at, you know, who were the contracting parties. And the contracting parties were the bank on the one hand and the long family land and cattle company on the other. So the individual tribal members, I don't believe, would have had a breach of contract. Well, but assume that the corporation had a breach of contract claim. Could they have sued in, in tribal court? I don't think that the long family land and cattle company appropriately was a plaintiff in tribal court to sue on breach of contract. You see, well, they, did they, the question is not they? whether it's an appropriate plaintiff. Do you think the tribal court would have had jurisdiction of such a, such a contract claim? I don't think so, without some sort of consent to hearing that claim. I thought, the bank, I thought that the um, long company was a plaintiff in the tribal court. The long company was a plaintiff in the tribal court. And as I understand it, the, the long company asserted, along with the individuals, contract claims. That's correct. But the law company did not make a tort claim. That's correct. So why isn't this judgment, even if you're right about the individuals in the tort claim, why isn't this judgment good at least as to the contract claim, which you're not challenging, and which runs to the benefit of the long company, which has nothing to do with the tort claim that you are challenging? Because of the way that the case was tried. If you look at the general verdict form at page 192, 191 and 192 in the joint appendix, you'll see that the, jury, the tribal court jury was asked interrogatories about liability, liability for contract, liability for discrimination. When they got to question six on page 192, the question was asked of the jury, if you answer yes to question four, for the other liability questions, for being the discrimination claim, then award damages. And so the jury awarded $750,000 of undifferentiated damages. Whether it was for contract, whether it was for tort, is not for us to now second guess. There was a general award of damages. And the jury was instructed that they could award damages for breach of, or for discrimination. So, you know, that is a feature of how the case was tried. It is a feature of the way that the jury returned its verdict. And at this point, it's impossible to know. The $750,000 that was ultimately awarded was far less than what the Longs were asking for for breach of contract. And they didn't say that they were not asking for damages for discrimination in the tribal, in the tribal court. So for this court to say now that there was no jurisdiction over the discrimination claim would basically invalidate that underlying judgment. Mr. Banker, you, you several times have, have raised a point which seems to me to go to the nature of the, 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 the first exception in Montana uh, on, on uh, a, an issue we haven't discussed yet, and I want to get clear on it. You, you have emphasized consistently through your argument the need for uh, consent, whether we call it actual, explicit, uh, some kind of consent uh, to at, at least the regulatory jurisdiction upon which uh, a, a judicial jurisdiction is, is premised. And my understanding is that that's not what — I don't have Montana in front of me, but my understanding is that that is not what Montana — uh, in effect, said with respect to the to the first exception, as I recall, what the court said in Montana, it was that there may be situations in which a non-member enters into a consensual relationship with the tribe or tribal members, 
And as a result of that consensual relationship, it then would be appropriate to recognize jurisdiction, uh, for example, to, to tax uh, regulatory jurisdiction. My understanding is that the consent that Montana was talking about was not a consent to the specific jurisdiction, whether it be regulatory or adjudicatory, but rather consent to some kind of or consent forming some kind of a relationship that would make it appropriate for the tribe to assert regulatory jurisdiction so that the consent does not have to relate to jurisdiction as such. Am, am I, and if, if that is correct, then your argument for consent seems to me to miss the point. But maybe I'm missing the point of, of, of Montana. What is your response to that? Well, what Montana said, you know, the actual language of Montana is it said a tribe may regulate through taxation, licensing, or other means the activities of non-members who enter consensual relationships with the tribe or its members through commercial dealings, contracts, leases, or other arrangements. So the consensual relationship is what you just read, contracts, leases, or other commercial. So the consent is to the commercial relationship. Well, I mean, my interpretation of that is, I mean, if if Montana in its first exception meant that the consent was in the consensual relationship, then any business dealings with a tribe or its members would result in tribal ability to regulate. And that hasn't been the case as this Court has, you know, decided but cases the, but after. the point of my question was, do you agree that there, within the, 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 the description of the exception in Montana, that there need not be a consent either to the regulation or to an adjudicatory jurisdiction to enforce the regulation? Not in the actual language of Montana, but in reading straight and in reading Hicks and in reading Atkinson Trading Company, that is my interpretation of So you're saying the Montana exception has been modified by later cases? That is correct. Okay. Certainly not in straight, which you quoted before, as saying if you have jurisdiction to regulate, then you have jurisdiction to enforce the regulation. True, but I think, you know, straight is an important part of that history. And I, th- I, I thought your argument was that the, the general principle that was adopted in Montana is the tribal jurisdiction extends only to those things that are necessary to protect, protect tribal self-government or to control internal relations, and that uh, merely entering into consensual commercial transactions doesn't fall within that but if one were to consent to the jurisdiction of the tribal courts, then that would be an additional basis for jurisdiction. I thought that was what your argument was. I believe that's correct. But if that's your argument, what's left of the first exception? Well, what's left of the first exception is, you know, certainly a tribal ability to regulate, and perhaps that's all. Uh, so the first, but, the, but as I understand it, you're, the first exception would have no independent application unless the second exception were meant, were, were, were satisfied, uh, uh, i.e., there was a, a tribal need uh, based on self-government, uh, economic self-protection, and so on, uh, which, which would, in effect, validate the tribe's attempt uh, to, to regulate, which seems, in effect, to say that everything turns on the second exception, not the first. Well, I think the first exception could still have meaning, 
in the sense that it grants the tribe the ability to regulate. The question really is how far does that ability go and how far does it stretch? Um, I don't think that it stretches to adjudication, and I further don't think it stretches to adjudication of non-consensual tort claims. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Frederick. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to address both standing and the merits, but because there are some additional wrinkles on the standing question in light of how it was briefed in the reply brief, I'd like to make three brief points on the merits before addressing standing. First, the bank engaged in a seven-year business relationship with the Longs, knowing that they were Indians and deriving substantial commercial benefits from the Longs' tribal status through the BIA loan guarantees. Second, the bank has not challenged tribal court jurisdiction over the breach of contract claim or the bad faith claim, which are the core claims in the case. The well, they said they don't need to because if they win on that claim, then the whole case and I'll address that, Justice Ginsburg, on, gen- on the general verdict point, which there's actually some law on this, which I'd like to uh, describe for the Court my understanding of it. My third point, though, is that both the District Court and the Eighth Circuit below found significant that the bank had conceded tribal court jurisdiction in its motion for summary judgment on its counterclaim, and they found that concession to be um, uh, important to note, and both courts below found the Indian character of the Long family company to be notable as well. Under this court's two-court rule, those fact findings are entitled to significant respect. Now, as to the standing question, Justice Ginsburg, let me get to your point on the general verdict. This is ultimately a question of tribal procedural law, how the tribal court would treat vacature of a claim deemed to be an invalid claim. And where do I look up that in uh, tribal law? Um, Mr. Chief Justice, under tribal law number one, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe has adopted the federal rules of civil procedure for procedure in the tribal courts. And under federal rule of civil procedure 49, uh, there are provisions for special verdicts and general verdicts. And rule 49A3 provides that if no specific objection is made to a fact or finding requested by the jury, it is waived. The bank here did not make a specific objection to the general interrogatory number six. Therefore, they may be deemed to have waived their objection to having the damages collected. Well, I'm sorry, I don't understand it. I'm looking at Joint Appendix 191 to 192. You have special interrogatories, including number six, but also number four, and then they have damages. Uh, and it's not clear whether those damages are based on the finding of liability under four or six. That's my point, Mr. Chief Justice. In the trial transcript, which is contained at roughly pages 555 through 562 of the tribal court record, there was colloquy on how these special interrogatories were to be framed. The bank objected to number four, the discrimination count, on the ground that a company cannot be um, a, discriminated against. Only individuals can be discriminated against. That objection was sustained, and so special interrogatory four was written as you see it in the joint appendix. The bank did not object to the general verdict question on damages. 
So the law on Rule 49A3 would be that special verdict is deemed to be waived, and now there is uh, some but cases. No Wait, they're, they're, they're not objecting to, uh, to, uh, to a general verdict. They're, they're objecting to the fact that, uh, uh, in their view, one of the elements of that, uh, of that general verdict uh, is based upon what they assert is an invalid uh, claim in the, in the Indian court. Precisely so, Justice I don't know Scalia. that they waive that when they, when they, when they allow a, a general verdict to go. The way the cases say uh, general verdict should be deemed, if there is an invalid claim, there are competing views about what to do with that when the damages award is treated as a general verdict. There is a circuit split on the question of what you do when there has not been a specific objection preserved and there is a general verdict and one invalid claim and evidence that supports a valid claim. Now, recall, they don't challenge the breach of contract claim. Our brief points out how all the evidence supports damages for breach of contract. Now, Judge Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit, in a case called uh, McCord v. McGuire, 873 F. 2nd, 1271, says that this waiver rule means that their uh, ability to challenge the general verdict would be waived and they would be forced to live with the verdict if evidence supports it. Under that if rule, evidence supports any one of the claims contained in the general that's verdict. That's correct. That's correct. The First Circuit, in a case called Gillespie versus Sears Roebuck, 386 F. 3rd 21, takes the position that if you have not filed your objection, you have not waived it. Who wrote that? You gave us the benefit of the author of the Ninth Circuit opinion. But Chief Judge Boudin, I was just about to say that. They're both very fine opinions. They you're, not, you're not asking us to resolve that circuit split in this case? No. What you? I'm saying is that the tribal court, which would be looking to federal law to resolve the effect of a supposed tainted claim, if you were to conclude that a discrimination claim is a tainted claim, would have to evaluate what effect that has on the final judgment. And because there is a circuit conflict on that question, unfortunately, I cannot give you a definitive answer as to how the tribal court would resolve that. My point, though, is that if this court concludes that there is a redressability problem in this case, which we would submit respectfully that there is, the appropriate course would be to vacate and remand for the lower courts to certify the question to the Tribal Court of Appeals or to make some further inquiry into the law to determine how. The Tribal Court of Appeals would have to be finding federal law. It wouldn't be Indian law. It'd it would be federal law. It is. You say they've adopted the federal rules, so whatever the, whatever the federal law — in other words, we would ask them — to answer the question that uh, that you don't want us to answer. No, I can ask. I'd ask you to go with the Ninth Circuit rule yeah. because that is uh, what I think is the correct rule. But, the, but Justice Scalia, any time a different jurisdiction incorporates some law into it, its own system, it is opining as a matter of Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe law. And as Cohen's Indian Law Treatise points out. Tribal courts would look not only to federal sources but also to state courts too. The rule in South Dakota follows the general verdict rule in which — And presumably tribal, whatever tribal precedent there may be as well. That's correct, although we have not been able to find precedent But neither could could anybody, right? I mean, if anybody could find it, you could. It's because it's not published anywhere, right? 
Well, there are published decisions. This, co- this is a question of first impression. Suddenly, your reliance upon the federal rules doesn't impress me as much as it did when you first told me about it, because apparently the federal rules mean whatever the tribal courts say they mean. Is that is that right? No, I think Justice Scalia, the court would look at the various sources of law. It, it would come look to its own decision it as to what they mean. Yes. So, the but federal, I can, to one of the points you mentioned earlier is that this is an Indian. Corporation, and that's a concept I don't understand. If Justices Scalia and Alito form a corporation, is that an Italian corporation? I would like to beg the indulgence of the Court in not answering that question specifically. No, but my point. My and point, do we get special loan guarantees? That's it. I understand the concept of a minority-owned or an Indian-owned corporation, but the point here is you are trying to say that the corporation is a member of the tribe, and I just don't know, and I certainly don't think the state, when it incorporated this entity, said you're a different type of corporation than every other. You're an Indian corporation. Well, to the contrary, Mr. Chief Justice, there is a state Supreme Court case on point called Poirier, which we cited in our brief, which says that a majority-owned corporation under South Dakota state law shall be treated as a member of that tribe uh, for the tax purposes that were at issue in that case. So Uh, how would a normal, I guess, a non-Indian or non-Italian or non-Irish corporation uh, uh, dealing with the long family land and cattle company know that it was an Indian corporation? Well, I, I th- Putting apart the particulars of this case, where no, they don't. But, yeah. Mr. Chief Justice, let me let me step back and say I'm not here to advocate that uh, there can be different racial characteristics of corporations. What is anomalous about this case and the way the BIA has set up this program is that the BIA establishes principles of Indian identity so that it can determine whether it satisfies congressional mandates. Well, I know that the, the BIA says that, but if you're a bank. And somebody comes in and say, I'm a corporation, I would like a loan. Is the bank supposed to start asking questions about whether they're Indian shareholders and how many and all that? Banks typically do require lots of documentation, Mr. Chief Justice. So they should have a checkbox on their their loan application that says, are you an Indian? The difference here, Mr. Chief Justice, is that the bank required BIA loan guarantees as a condition. I'm asking you about in general case. Let's say they don't require BIA loan guarantees. They require, just as in this case, collateral. They did not. They required more, and that's the important point. The facts here actually matter. In general, well, I'm sure the facts here that. matter. I have a hypothetical question. A bank dealing with an Indian-owned corporation, how are they supposed to find out, or may they find out, whether it's an Indian-owned corporation? Particularly when, under your approach, when they do form that contract, they're subjecting themselves to tribal court jurisdiction. I would acknowledge that when there are no BI loan guarantees required, a bank may or may not know of the identity of the owners of the corporation. And are they, do they subject themselves to tribal court jurisdiction because they're dealing with, as you call it, an Indian corporation? Without further facts, no. Here, though, the bank required the BI loan. It went on to the reservation to scrutinize the collateral. It required personal guarantees from the tribal members. It got collateral and guarantees on the personal effects and chattels. Um, it knew that the corporation was doing all of its business on tribal trust lands. It went into the tribal headquarters to determine 
that the um, uh, tribe was comfortable with the various loan arrangements. It enlisted the assistance of tribal financial officers to ensure that the cash flow would be so that if the bank had two two different types of loans in one situation, the corporation comes to the bank. It is an Indian corporation if there is such a thing, and the bank deals with it, although it doesn't know that. In the other situation are the facts, as you suggest here. And the dealing through the normal collateral consequences and operations of a contract with a bank, they want to know the collateral and all that, that constitutes consent, but a commercial relationship with a member does not. I I think in general, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I I would agree with that hypothetical, but here if you took away the BIA loan piece, I think the facts very strongly point to the bank knowing it was engaging in a consensual relations with Indians because it went on tribal trust lands and involved the officers of the tribe for effectuating the loan. Well, there, there are many facts here that are favorable to your position, but I would appreciate it if you could articulate the, the rule of law that you would like us to adopt in this case, the general principle that you would like, general rule that you would like us to adopt? Justice Alito, I don't think I can approve on the language that's in Montana in its first exception itself, which is that there are consensual relations that are licensing of commercial. Any can, can that be the case, any consensual relationship between a tribe, a member of a tribe and a non-member is subject to the jurisdiction of, of the tribal courts? No, I think that the straight case imposed a nexus requirement, I think the liability has to arise out of that consensual relationship, which it clearly does here. Well, so a, the, an Indian goes to a bank off the reservation and asks for a loan uh, and gets the loan. That contract is subject to the jurisdiction of the tribal courts. No, I, I don't think necessarily any loan. I think I answered Mr. Chief Justice's question to the effect that any kind of general loan of that nature would not necessarily give rise. There well, it, it has to be a known, a known consensual relationship, for one thing. Wouldn't you add that requirement? Yes. It, it, yes. All right. So the Indian goes to the bank and says, I'm an Indian, give me a loan. The bank gives him a loan. That's subject to the jurisdiction of the tribal courts? No, I don't. I think, Justice Alito, that there are very fine gradations in the facts, and we are not asking for a, 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 an articulation of a general rule of the kind of sweeping effect that the petitioners are asking for. We're asking for a straightforward application of Montana 1 on facts here that developed over a su- but, substantial but, well, not, number of years. Isn't it necessary for there to be some kind of clear notice? Somebody puts an ad in the newspaper to sell a used car, Someone shows up to purchase the used car, purchases the used car, and says, and and by the way, I'm an Indian. That's subject to the jurisdiction of the tribal courts? I don't think that necessarily would give rise to the kind of consensual relationship that Montana was speaking about. Well, why not? What's missing there? I think what's missing is the uh, longevity of a relationship, the degree to which the cause of action arose out of the answering of that ad. I mean, one of the features of — It's an odd sort of basis on which to — predicate jurisdiction. We usually, when you're dealing with jurisdiction, we usually look for a bright-line rule. Well, I think that the um, necessary concomitant of having tribes with their elements of sovereignty residing within states and within the United States is to have somewhat less bright-line features to some of these jurisdictional principles. Our submission here is that earlier, the I'm, I'm sorry. You, you said earlier that this was a straightforward application of Montana? Given the facts that are present yeah, in given the your case. Facts. But isn't it true that this would be the, ver- the first case in which we have asserted or allowed Indian tribal jurisdiction to be asserted over a non-member? 
yes, it would, although the court in National Farmers and in Iowa Mutual could have disposed of the case simply on a bright-line rule basis, but rejected that very notion. Do you think it's inherent in Montana exception number one that an Indian tribal court uh, in the course of uh, adjudicating commercial dealings has the capacity to elaborate common law? Yes. And, and I don't to, think to elaborate that, tribal common law. Uh, that's how I understood. Tribal common law. Yes, that's how I understood Justice Kennedy's question. You know, and it, it, it is the same that. Um, and you think that's necessary for regulating consensual relationships? I think that yes, it can be. I mean, the, the, I, I thought I heard uh, the petitioner acknowledge today that if the discrimination rule had been written down, that that would be perfectly fine. It put everybody on notice. These principles of discrimination here are rather. Uh, he, he backed off from that. I, I pressed the point and. Uh, well, my, my submission here is that the bank did not avail itself of any of the procedures in Rule 12 to clarify the source of the law, to move to dismiss the discrimination claim, to move for summary judgment on the discrimination claim. What about, what about their point that under our system, uh, governing is based on the consent of the governed, and in this case, the bank has no role to play in the nature or establishment of the court to which they're being subjected? Well, in this particular case, uh, Your Honor, this bank has availed itself purposefully of tribal courts on at least 14 occasions. This would be the 15th case. These are set out in the tribe's brief, the amicus brief, footnotes 27 well, and 29. This is not a stranger to the tribal court, Mr. Chief Justice. Well, suppose it were the first occasion. I mean, what's the rule? That, that doesn't help me. My point is — In other words, is, if you go — if you make a mistake 14 times, you're bound to 15. I, that's kind of an estoppel. No, I'm not saying that the availment of the tribal court is what creates the jurisdiction. I'm saying it responds to the point that the, the bank can hardly claim surprise. They know how to deal with tribal law and tribal procedures. They could have asked the non-member judge who presided over this trial to clarify how the discrimination would be done in the tribal transcript the colloquy on discrimination was rather straightforward as to treating members in a fair way as compared to treating non-members. These are not difficult concepts in the law. Mr. Frederick, before you finish, I, I would like you to give uh, your best answer to a lurking underlying concern, and that is the Chief Justice brought up the outsider subjected to uh, court's where, where the outsider has has no vote. That happens when you're sued in a state that's not your own. But there is the right to remove. And also, at the end of the line is this court, and I think in the case of the tribal courts, neither of those exist. There's no, you can't remove to a state or federal court, and this court has no review authority over a tribal court's judgment. I have two suggested uh, responses to that. Justice Ginsburg. One is that when a tribal court judgment needs to be enforced, it can be brought in state court, and in South Dakota follows the comity rule, which means that it has to satisfy certain requirements of fairness, adherence to basic principles, and the law before a state supreme the state court will enforce the tribal court judgment. Not the, same, not the same faith and credit that it would give to a sister state judge. That's correct. It's not full faith and credit. It's comity. And th that comity provides for a substantive review while enforcing the judgment. Well, what if the tribal law has certain cultural principles, such as fairness and equity of a sort that aren't recognized 
under federal state law in this type of contractual relationship. Does that preclude the state court from giving comedy or not? The, the way the South Dakota statute is worded, Mr. Chief Justice, unfortunately, I can't give you a direct answer to that because it, it, it involves a panoply of issues whether state law deems the final judgment ultimately to be a fair one. And, and importantly, when this Court recognized the jurisdictional point as giving rise to federal jurisdiction in national farmers, I would submit it also perhaps created the avenue for the enforcement of judgments to be brought in federal court as well. I don't understand why a jurisdictional challenge and a challenge to the enforcement of a judgment could not give rise to the same federal question jurisdiction recognized in national farmers. So I think there are two avenues to be in state or federal court when enforcing a judgment in tribal court that heretofore have not fully been explored, certainly not by any decisions of this court. If the Court has no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Frederick. Mr. Gannon. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court's Montana framework confirms that Indian tribes can, in some circumstances, exercise legitimate authority over nonmembers and nonmember land on their reservations. Unlike what has happened in the criminal context, the political branches have not acted to divest tribes generally of civil jurisdiction over nonmembers. Both before and after Montana was decided, Congress and this Court have repeatedly articulated the firm federal policy of encouraging tribal self-government and have recognized that tribal justice systems are an essential part of tribal government. Well, that may be. It depends on what you mean by tribal. I mean, it certainly would be rational to say that all disputes between members of the tribe can be resolved authoritatively by the uh, tribal court. But it's quite a different thing to say that a a dispute between a a non-member of the tribe and a member of the tribe can go to the tribal court. It's sort sort of the, the, the analog to being home fried in a foreign state is, uh, is pretty close. Well, Justice Scalia, that's of course true that there is a difference, but the Montana framework recognizes that the political branches have not completely divested tribes over jurisdiction over non-members in circumstances like this. Well, you, you agree with uh, your friend, Mr. Frederick, that Montana did not address jurisdiction over a non-member and that this would be the first case in which we've recognized such jurisdiction. Well, it did not specifically address any previous cases involving jurisdiction over a non-member defendant who was hailed into tribal defendant, court. Yes. But I, I think it is, it is the case that it, it clearly recognized that the consensual relationship that is established before the lawsuit begins is what provides for regulatory jurisdiction in some of the cases and adjudicatory jurisdiction, as is now clear from straight of the court's subsequent decision. In your view, does uh, a jurisdiction follow all regulatory authority? If well, it's within regulatory authority, then does, is it your position that there is necessarily jurisdiction to enforce in a tribal court in, well, a, in, a, in, in civil, civil cases? Well, in Iowa Mutual, this Court did state that tribal courts are best qualified to interpret and apply tribal law. And so — And your position uh, is uh, regulatory jurisdiction concomitant with civil judicial jurisdiction in the tribal court? Generally, yes. What happens if the bank deals with the corporation that is not an Indian corporation, um, and then that, the shareholders of that corporation sell their shares to Indians? Well, Does the bank now have a, 
consensual relationship with an Indian corporation? Well, I, th I think, Mr. Chief Justice, to expand upon the discussion that you were having with Mr. Frederick, um, that the consensual relationship that's necessary to establish jurisdiction in the sense of the Montana's first exemption requires not only that there be a consensual relationship with a member, and which we do think that implicit in that is some knowledge, at least objective knowledge, that you knew you were dealing with a tribal member. And so if the consensual relationship were established and with, with somebody who was not a non-member who subsequently ended up through um, sales of shares to become a member, we don't think that that that, that ex post facto development would affect the establishment of the original relationship. You would add on the reservation. I yes, mean, absolutely, if, Justice Scalia. He, that is he something walks into some town in uh, South Dakota, the, the mere fact that you know he's an Indian it has to be on the reservation. Absolutely, Justice Scalia. And that follows directly from the terms of Montana itself, because Montana says that the exceptions are about instances of, quote, civil jurisdiction over non-Indians on the reservation. And, and that's an important Well, but the only, reason, the only reason the bank is on the reservation is because the land was collateral, right? Well, the only reason — They didn't want to buy land on a reservation. They wanted to make a loan and get the — interest or whatever, and it just turned out that the, uh, the Indians defaulted, and therefore they were left with the land on a reservation. Is that consensual? Well, everything about this transaction was related to the reservation. To be sure, part of it dealt with fee land on the reservation, but the rest of the ranch's operations, including places where the bank possessed collateral uh, security interests in personal property, were on tribal So if it's lands. a different the Indian, uh, the, the corporation uh, uh, is owned by members on the reservation. The collateral they put up is off the reservation. Is there consensual dealings with the corporation then? Well, the thing that's key here, I believe, is that the subject of the contract was intimately connected with the reservation itself, and that's why it comes within Montana's discussion of if civil the subject of the contract is a loan to a corporation owned by Indians on the reservation, the collateral put up is other land that the corporation owns or the individuals own off the reservation, jurisdiction or not. Without any further facts, no. I don't think that would be enough to establish jurisdiction. What's important here is that the subject of the contract was actually on the reservation, and, and that's why it, it comes in. I, get, I guess what I mean different is what do you mean by the subject of the contract? Well, the loan here was for specific purposes. It was for — it was — there were a lot of — specific terms in which the bank dictated lots of practices on the, on the ranch, and, and it knew everything about the way the operation was being conducted. It required express approval for individual purchases and things like that. And so this is not an instance where a member is engaging in business off the reservation. And indeed, in, in Blaze Construction, uh, the Court addressed a case in which there was a member-owned corporation that was doing business on a different reservation, and the parties conceded there that that would not be considered to be a member for purposes of Montana. Uh, that was actually a taxation case, but, but it would not be considered a member for purposes of, of, of what, these exceptions. Am I correct that the collateral here, the land, the land that was collateral was within the reservation, but it was not Indian land? Well, that's generally correct, Justice Scalia. There's a little bit of a dispute in the probate proceedings about exactly the status of the land. But, yes, this transaction did involve transfer of the deed um, to, to the bank, and, therefore, at that point, it would have been uh, it, to the extent that that transfer was effective, it would have been non-member on, and, and on the think, reservation. And you think that uh, that's enough? It doesn't have to — when you say on the reservation, you include as on the reservation uh, — land that is no longer owned by Indians, but, uh, but is within the reservation boundaries. 
the thing that, it, that triggers the regulation here or the jurisdictional authority of the tribe is the consensual relationship with the tribal member. And so it's, it's, it's not this — isn't, this isn't like a tort that occurred on a particular piece of land where we're asking — Well, no, wait, but, but you said that consensual relationship is not enough if, if, if you enter into a relationship with, with an Indian in South Dakota on, you know, uh, in the state capital. Uh, that isn't enough. It has to be on yes. the reservation. You yes. acknowledge it, that. Yes, and it for does purposes have to be of on the reservation, it's enough that you're dealing with, uh, with land that is uh, — within the reservation, even, it, even if it is no longer Indian land? Yes, Justice Scalia. And, and the Montana exceptions does, deal with jurisdiction. On the land mean — on the reservation mean land on the reservation, or does it extend any further than that? I, I, I can't say — Let's say some — an Indian gets an auto loan for a vehicle to be used in a business on the reservation. Is that on the reservation? In general, the — sale of goods off the reservation unless there's some particularly intimate connection with uh, with the reservation that that the parties anticipate at the time probably isn't going to be enough to trigger jurisdiction. And so — What about a home equity loan if for it's a home a, on the reservation? For a home that's on the reservation? Yeah. And it's for — for remodeling Whatever home, home equity home loans or, are for. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, um, that that's — if it were going to be used for something completely off the reservation, then maybe an argument could be made that it doesn't have enough to do with regulating activities that are occurring on the reservation. Well, they're, they're going to add, add a new wing under the new room under their home. And, and that's an example where I do think that. Uh, so if Chase Manhattan gets a lo- home equity loan application from somebody and they grant the home equity loan, they are now subject to being sued in tribal court. If they know that they are dealing with a member and they have not included any forum selection or choice of law provisions that, that say that they want to be sued and resolve disputes in some other forum, then it may well be the case that they, they will be sued in tribal court. What, what if the tribal court has a rule that forum selection provisions are not enforceable? Well, I think it's probably unlikely that the tribal courts would — or that the the tribe would adopt a, a rule like that because, as a pragmatic matter, it would make it more difficult for their citizens to engage in business relationships if they had a categorical ban like that. And so — Then I, could you go into federal court under what was it, Palmer's, and say they had no jurisdiction because we had a forum selection clause? I — if — if there was a forum, I, that would be a, dis, a question about the, the nature of the underlying consent. And, and I do think that, in general, forum selection clauses here ought to be enforced. And so it would be relevant to, to, to the scope of the consensual relationship there. Does uh, the judgment here that the bank discriminated against the Indian Corporation because they didn't give them as favorable terms as they gave someone who hadn't defaulted on a loan — uh, impede dealings with uh, uh, Indian corporations by outside members, outside non-members? Well, I, as was pointed out earlier, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the, the only duties that the bank was exposed to here were a duty not to breach contracts and not to discriminate, and the only question is the source of those duties. What was the basis for the finding of discrimination? The — it was the — under, according to the jury instruction, it was a person or entity denied a privilege to a person based solely upon that person's race or tribal identity. And it had nothing to do with the, — the bank's justification had nothing to do with the fact that the entity had defaulted earlier? No, I don't believe so, Your Honor. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Banker, you have two minutes remaining. 
think when you when you step back and listening to the to the arguments of opposing counsel, you know, where, what is the other way that tribal courts get that, that the tribes get jurisdiction over non-members? Well, Congress can provide it. And if we look at this Bureau of Indian Affairs Loan Guarantee Program, <clears throat> which Congress authorized, Congress didn't provide jurisdiction over non-members in the implementation of that program. So you've got an elaborate loan program <coughs> that is designed to provide capital to tribes and tribal members, and Congress is silent on that. Now, in other instances, Congress has provided authorization for tribal courts and tribes to have jurisdiction over non-members. Congress is aware of this Court's opinion in uh, Montana, presumably, and the cases that follow from it. But in the Bureau of Indian Affairs Loan Guarantee Program, Congress remained silent. What do we infer from that? Um, I think it is crucial when you think about non-member defendants in tribal court and whether they can have their rights adjudicated there, to think about the structural problems, the lack of a right to remove the lack of a right to have this court provide a substantive review. There is what no general principle uh, underscores the validity of your point, that, the, that it's uh, is the Republican form of government clause, the due process clause. What is the general principle you, you rely on to say that we have to look uh, to the structure of these courts? If I, the structure is insufficient, then it violates what prohibition in the Constitution? I think that the you know the tribal courts stand outside of the federal of the federal state relationship. I think it is a question of due process. I think it is a question of uh, equal protection. Due process for whom? The tribal courts aren't governed aren't uh, creatures that are subject to the due process clause. Well, right, that's that's exactly the point. I mean, it is the due process right of the. But what is what is the constitutional prohibition that is a restriction? on assigning cases to a, a court that does not follow the due process clause if it's an Indian court. It's, it's not the same as if we assign this to the American Arbitration Association. What's the difference? I think the difference is that the, the constitutional protections of non-members do not apply down to tribal courts. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.